This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Quick Fixes, Drugs in America from Prohibition to the 21st Century Binge by Benjamin Y. Fong. Americans are in the midst of a world-historic drug binge. Opiates, amphetamines, benzodiazepines, marijuana, antidepressants, antipsychotics. Across the board, consumption has shot up in the 21st century. At the same time, the United States is home to the largest prison system in the world, in part justified by a now zombified war on drugs. How did we get here? Quick Fixes is a look at American society through the lens of its pharmacological crutches. Each chapter is devoted to the modern history of a drug or class of drugs, as Fong examines Americans' fraught relationship with psychoactive substances. Quick Fixes, Drugs in America from Prohibition to the 21st Century Binge, by Benjamin Y. Fong. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Latin America has inspired the U.S. left all the way back to the Cuban Revolution, and even before, all the way back to the Mexican Revolution. So many left-wing movements and governments across the region have been attacked by right-wing forces, backed by our very own U.S. government. As a result, the U.S. left has frequently prioritized a politics of solidarity, opposing U.S. intervention, and supporting Latin America's people's movements and socialist governments. Today, my guest is Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who recently joined fellow progressive members of Congress on a delegation to meet with left officials and movement leaders in Brazil, Colombia, and Chile. The Center for Economic and Policy Research, or CEPR, helped organize the trip, and CEPR's delegations coordinator, David Adler, told Foreign Policy, quote, In 1823, President James Monroe set out a vision of U.S. domination in the Western Hemisphere. Two hundred years later, a new generation of congressional leaders traveled to Latin America to bury that doctrine to redress the crimes committed by the United States in its past support for coups, dictatorships, and colonial regimes, and to propose a new vision of the Western Hemisphere as a community of equal nations. Briefly, before we get started, I don't know if you noticed, but I rewrite this part of my intro every single show, the part where I ask you to contribute money at patreon.com slash the dig. The reason I do that is because I know it's extremely easy to tune this stuff out. But I can't emphasize enough how unusual and special our funding model is and how much we need you to do our thing. We don't paywall any episodes because we want all of you to listen regardless of your ability to pay. That only works because so many of you who can afford to contribute a few dollars a month that you do so. If you are a fan of this pod and you have five, ten, $20, whatever amount a month to contribute, please do your part to ensure the long-term financial viability of the dig. We have swag, books, tote bags, coffee mugs to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month, and an excellent newsletter for contributions of any amount at all that will deliver straight to your email inbox. That's patreon.com slash the dig. 
please make a contribution that feels like the right amount to you now. Okay, here's U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who represents New York's 14th District. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Generations of American leftists have have looked to Latin America for inspiration and to express solidarity from the Cuban Revolution through Allende, Central America's revolutionary struggles against Ronald Reagan-backed dirty wars, all the way through the first pink tide that swept the region in the aughts. What, from your perspective, does solidarity with Latin America mean today? And specifically, what sort of policy change do you advocate as a member of Congress that might beneficially change the U.S. relationship to the region? Well, in terms of what solidarity means, I think that it requires actual relationship. You know, I think very often when we speak about Latin America and movements happening in Latin America, it can often be from an academic or historical perspective. But so often when we talk about solidarity, there are so many movements that are in present day struggle and they are generational. And I think developing real relationship to many of the most present movements happening in Latin America right now is probably one of the best ways for us to express solidarity. Earlier this year, when President Lula came to Washington, I had the benefit of sitting down with him as well as Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal and Congressman Ro Khanna. Senator Bernie Sanders also met with him, in addition to the head of the AFL-CIO as well as President Biden. But when I sat with Lula and I kind of asked him what he thinks is needed right now from the progressive side, the thing that he had kind of said quite directly is that You know, in Latin America, progressives regularly gather, but U.S. progressives are nowhere to be seen. He doesn't know where we are. He doesn't think any South America, much of Central and South America, doesn't know where we are. And I took that as a challenge. And so uh, that's one of the main reasons that precipitated our visit very recently to Brazil, Chile, and Colombia. But, you know, hearing it from them themselves, it's really that we need to be present there today. um, And we need to be building relationship there today. So I'd say in terms of the solidarity piece, that's what's most important. From a policy piece, there's a wide range. um, And we can dig into any number of issues. But I think any one of our policy stances also needs to spring from that relationship building. Um, because a lot of these stances are not obvious, um, and they they can't just be gleaned from from study. They have to be gleaned from relationship and dialogue. Yeah, we can get into a bunch of the the specifics one by one. Obviously, the the ghosts of really bloody U.S. intervention are are everywhere in Latin America, including very much, of course, in Chile. First, what? What stuck out to you from your visit to a country whose socialist government was overthrown was overthrown with U.S. assistance in 1973, 50 years ago, this September 11th? And then secondly, what can the U.S. do today in solidarity with Chileans who are 
still very much fighting to confront Pinochet's still very much alive legacy? Yes. Well, one of the themes that I think was very prominent in Chile, but it also really came up as well in Brazil and Colombia, is how deep the polarization is, especially when it comes to media and how that is influencing the current political dynamics in Chile. It cannot be understated how much the U.S. far right and fascist movements have been working extremely hard to export many of their tactics and goals throughout Latin America. We've seen it, of course, famously in Brazil with Bolsonaro and the January 8th attack on their capital. But in Chile, this is also very, very prevalent. And one of the ways that we are seeing this expressed in Chile is a desire to erase history. We, of course, have seen this practiced and often perfected in the United States with efforts to erase slavery from our history books, or even presently, almost as soon as the January 6th attack happened on our capital, there are many fascist movements that sought to kind of evade any documentation or accounting or sowing doubt about who or what was responsible. And we see that a lot in presently in Chile. There is an enormous amount of right-wing media whose infrastructure has truly developed to very uh, sophisticated levels. And even in the United States, where folks may rightly and often articulate how much of our media is dominated by corporate interests, in Chile, it is it is very, very conservative. And developing, I think, more of that awareness, uh, it, it includes the fact that there's, a, there's an enormous movement to try to erase what happened with the coup and with the overthrowing of Salvador Allende's government which is why why our call for the United States to declassify many of the documents that we have regarding U.S. involvement in the coup uh, against Salvador Allende is so important because when there is a real-time fight to erase history in Chile, we are at the point where people, the rewriting of history there, there's an argument now even that Salvador Allende, that, that the coup was almost um, sympathetic as though this was a government that had it coming. The importance of the United States to be able to declassify this information as a credible third party to say that there was external involvement, that this is something that happened, and that it is something that was incredibly unjust, it it can't be understated how important um, that would be for the Chilean people, as well as the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people impacted Uh, by having a family member lost or missing or tortured during the Pinochet regime. Are there similar steps in terms of declassification that that could be taken in terms of the historic U.S. ties to to the Colombian and Brazilian militaries? Yes, I have introduced legislation to declassify records regarding U.S. involvement in Brazil, Chile, and Colombia, all three. And I believe that all three are incredibly important Uh, But with Chile, I think that the country is still so much in a process of healing over what happened that I think it is potentially most urgent in Chile, especially coming up on the 50th anniversary. But I do believe that the United States, uh, it is very important for our relationship in Latin America in general, for us to declassify information regarding this 
and for Americans, everyday Americans, to understand how the politics of Latin America today are very, very deeply shaped by U.S. intervention in the region historically. Colombia, of course, has also been on the receiving end of an enormous amount of U.S.-sponsored violence. And we don't have to go back 50 years to to look at the track record of Plan Colombia. What did you learn about the country's peace process and the history of violence there? A peace process, by the way, that is today overseen, of course, by Gustavo Petro, the first left-wing president in Colombian history. And what does the U.S.'s historically violent role in that country tell us about how the U.S. could play a different sort of role now? Or is the best thing that the U.S. can do just stay the hell out? Well, I, I actually do think that we have a role to play. I think the, the notion that we historically would come in, engage in a sort of interventionism that would wreak so much havoc uh, in so many communities and then just leave is, it's, I don't think that that is a proper way for us to be held accountable for our role and to also be a good partner moving forward. It's not something that Colombia wants either, I think on any end of the political spectrum. You know, when it comes to Colombia's situation, I think something that um, I appreciated far more in visiting there is how much the history of Colombia is never told. And that prevents people in the United States from supporting just policies. So, for example, you know, when you hear Colombia, the average American, if if anything comes to mind, what comes to mind is narcos and guerrillas and just this idea of all of these different paramilitaries and guerrilla organizations and just kind of warfare. Uh, but It's like a, a caricature. Right. Truly a caricature without an understanding of the root of this conflict. And if we don't understand where this conflict is coming from, we will never be able to really approach the situation in a manner that will allow us to be a positive partner and to help reconciliation. And I think the most important part of understanding is that the issues in Colombia, I believe, are fundamentally about legitimacy and the legitimacy of governments. You have a government that historically was dominated by elite and right-wing interests that then uh, proceeded to state that they were going to be a democracy in the mid-1900s and ostensibly converted to that democracy except every time a liberal party, left party member began to ascend, they were assassinated. And I mean, if you just imagine how horrifying it would be if, if this was our situation, if the Republican Party, which, you know, it, I think the most extreme right wing <laughs> of our party wants this, right? Or not our party, their party. They they could go there. <laughs> right. This is this is like the lock them up. This is the this is the attacks, these this is the violence, but where you basically have a one party state, uh, and it is a one party right wing state. And whenever a liberal or democratic, et cetera, party begins to organize, uh, that presidential nominee is assassinated. And it it then leaves many people to say, well, clearly this is not a legitimate government. And if we want the poor, if we want working class people to have any shot at life, we're going to engage in revolution and in violent revolution at that. 
And that's really the seeds of what we have in Colombia, which is a government, you have a, you have a, a right-wing government, and then you have left-wing militias um, because there is no space, there's no democratic space for a two, an actual two-party system. And then when you have the introduction of cocaine and the drug trade, then this, this situation grows much more complicated. You have the introduction of paramilitaries. You have a much more ideological frame, perhaps, in the 80s and 90s. But then with the introduction of illegal mining and the introduction of narco-trafficking, the financial incentives start to muddy the waters in, in this landscape much more significantly. So then you have Plan Colombia, where the United States then starts to funnel billions of dollars. I mean, between the year 2000 and now, the United States has put in $14 billion to the Colombian government, overwhelmingly militarized aid. And this was under Uribe, who is an autocrat, uh, widely seen as an autocrat. And you have the scandal of falsos positivos for the Colombian government uh, financially incentivized to kill guerrilla, uh, guerrillas, guerrilla combatants, um, started to kill innocent people and marking them as guerrilla combat combatants in order to pursue greater financial compensation. And this has created an enormous divide. And I think that is the importance when we talk about how the U.S. can play a role today. The, the election of Gustavo Petro, who is a complex political figure, his election as the first leftist elected in the history of Colombia is incredibly important. And the reason that it's important is because it is the first time that Colombians have had any shred of evidence that democracy can actually yield diverse political results. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, it is I think what is underappreciated about his election is that people don't quite understand how much it's less connected to him as a figure and just the fact that someone liberal left, et cetera, can be elected president without being assassinated first provides hope for any semblance of peace and nonviolence in this country. That, I think, when we see Republicans attack Colombia and try to withdraw aid, uh, block a U.S. ambassador, it is so dangerous because it begins to reinforce this slide back into illegitimacy for Colombia. And I think that is part of the delicate nature of this. Even in Latin America, I mean, there, there is disagreement about how to approach very difficult to topics, for example, Venezuela, or how Latin America positions itself in a multi an increasingly multipolar world. And I think that all of that discourse is quite valid and important. But what cannot be, I think, eroded is the legitimacy of this government because of its historic context, how important and delicate that is. The, the politics of oil and mining are really high profile and contentious across Latin America. Lula's victory over Bolsonaro was was a victory against the deforestation of the Amazon, yet Lula Lula has also been heavily criticized by environmentalists for for indicating that he may support new oil exploration in the Amazon basin. 
Meanwhile, Gustavo Petro in Colombia has pledged to end oil production in Colombia, and Ecuadorian voters just took a really historic vote to bar oil production in the countries, in the Yasuni, in the country's remotest Amazonian region. What can we learn from Latin America's environmental movements, given given the difficulties I think we on the American left are encountering, trying to build a big and powerful enough climate movement here in the U.S. to that's up to the up to the task of, of confronting climate change? Well, I think there are a couple of things for us to examine. One is the geopolitics of fossil fuels in the region. And I mean, really, when we talk about why, I think this also connects to, to us back home. When we talk about why, for example, President Biden is authorizing uh, more oil drilling than at historic levels, why someone like Lula is also doing this. You also even have, on the other end of things, you have Gabriel Boric seeking to nationalize uh, lithium in Chile. A lot of it has less to do with the domestic fossil fuel demand, and it has to do with international fossil fuel demand and geopolitics and how any individual country seeks to position itself. Uh, All three Brazil, Chile, and Colombia do not rely on fossil fuels for the majority of their energy consumption. They're actually very advanced when it comes to their energy mix in renewables. Brazil uses geothermal and hydro. Um, All of them have at least 50% of renewable energy, most of them more. Many of them are in the 60, 65, 67% uh, renewable energy, as high as that. And so when we talk about why there is kind of this push to export more oil, it's because it, it's just that, it's exportation. It's um, the idea of oil drilling for uh, global markets. And I think that's because Latin America is very motivated to be independent in this multipolar uh, world. When you look at, and this I think is something that I think leftists absolutely need to contend with which is that in order to pursue and afford many of these social programs and state programs, the revenue from fossil fuel exportation, as well as any other natural resources, which there of which there are many um, that are exported is necessary, that it, it depends on that. And so when we talk about a transition and a just transition to renewables, one of the big questions that we have is what is going to be the revenue replacement for fossil fuels in order to sustain critical programs like universal basic income, Bolsa Familia in Brazil, or healthcare programs, et cetera. And this is a very tricky question that I think all of us are going to have to contend with. But on the other side, as you mentioned, Ecuador, Colombia, and many others are having great strides in their climate movements and protections of the Amazon. And this is where I believe sometimes us in North America, it requires a little bit more of of that nuance uh, because a lot of these fights are not explicitly left-right. For example, ostensibly, or rather kind of these guerrilla factions that are rooted in ostensibly left or revolutionary uh, roots are often uh, responsible for illegal mining and the killing of indigenous peoples in order to sustain a financial base for them to, you know, con- uh, continue their their activities. And so I think when it comes to that piece, 
it's very important that we look towards the direct organizing of indigenous groups, Afro-Colombian groups, and, and many others to examine the efficacy of what they are doing. In addition to technology investment, where we can continue to explore and pursue new energy modes without them being as damaging in their extraction. I'm really glad you pointed to the Global North's ongoing ecological debt to, to Latin America and the reality that the Global North needs to make it economically possible for Latin America and in Africa and so much of the world to equitably develop in an ecologically sustainable way. We can't just, the United States cannot just be like, okay, everything's green now and uh, you're stuck where you are economically. Have fun. Absolutely. Especially when you when you look at the U.S.'s resistance to engage in loss and damages for developing countries. At COP, uh, at COP 26 and, and 27, the U.S. has exhibited extraordinary resistance to essentially climate reparations, to helping developing countries transition because it is the you know, most advanced economies in the world that are responsible for the most emissions. Yeah, and countries that face enormous climate risk have contributed an infinitesimally small amount of carbon into the atmosphere. Correct. In Brazil, you met with the Landless Workers Movement, or MST. What, what did you learn about the fight for land reform in Brazil? And what sort of relevance, perhaps, might their movement have for our own increasingly urgent struggles around housing justice in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, wow. The lessons from MST, I think, are probably um, some of the the biggest ones that I had, at least in terms of grassroots organizing on, on this trip. What I found so remarkable about MST and their counterpart, MTST, so MST is um, sin terreno, so that's uh, without land, landless workers, and then MTST is sin techo, without roof, so it's home houseless, homeless workers as well. Um, so one is more rural and the other is a more urban counterpart. And there, there were so many things that they do that are just remarkable. First, their direct action, which is part of a larger, both not just ideological vision, but also part of a very strategic uh, vision is astounding to see. But also there are other several other dynamics. Their decision to engage in electoralism and how they engage in electoralism is fascinating. Their programs around popular education are also very critical to their movements. And I found that the way that they balance all of these things, a kind of radicalism in direct action and a pragmatism in their electoral program, to be awe-inspiring the absolute rejection of cynicism in this movement, I find to also be astounding. We struggle with that, <laughs> to say the least, in the United States. it's We struggle, I think, with this binary, which is that you're either a true revolutionary and you believe in direct action and autonomy and the electoral system is a sham and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that that creates this kind of cynical vortex in a way. And it keeps you small. Like you can be very radical and do your thing, but you're going to be very small. Or it's this electoralism where kind of more radical movements and radical action is 
is dismissed and seen as naive. And it's very difficult to coalition build on those two. I mean, I've been, I've certainly (laughs) been subject to that high wire act a lot. And to see people in Brazil, um, especially in a multi-party system, they have, Lula is part of the PT. Lula is part of the workers party. Then there's a socialist party, PSOL, PSOL, where where MST is a part of that. MST is not part of Lula's political party. And then you also have communist parties. You have many other parties. And the fact that all of them come together in a very strong program of solidarity is astounding to me. I think that it's something that Chile, for example, uh, struggles with a bit. And uh, I, I also think that it speaks a lot towards what makes these three leaders different. All three of them, of course, are progressive populists, but they are also very distinct individuals from one another. And it's important to study those differences, not to put them on some ranking ladder of relative value, but to see what each one of them can teach us individually and distinctly. Right. This is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine by Norman Solomon. From Iraq through Afghanistan and Syria, and on to little-known deployments in a range of countries around the globe, the United States has been at perpetual war for at least the past two decades. 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan set into motion a hugely consequential shift in America's foreign policy, a constant state of war that is almost entirely invisible to the American public. War Made Invisible by the journalist and political analyst Norman Solomon exposes how this happened and what its consequences are, from military and civilian casualties to drained resources at home. Necessary, timely, and unflinching, War Made Invisible by Norman Solomon is available now from the New Press. Order your copy wherever books are sold. Obviously, the the social, economic, political, and ecological crises facing Latin America are pushing people from their homes in huge numbers, resulting in huge numbers of immigrants arriving at the U.S. border with Mexico, many of whom move on to New York, where the arrival of immigrants is intersecting with the city's already out-of-control housing crisis. How might we connect a politics of migrant solidarity, something that I really worry about for a number of reasons, including that most liberals seem to have stopped caring about the subject after Trump's first three years of office, and also that the ecological crisis means that there's just going to be more and more and more people getting pushed from their homes. How might we connect the politics of migrant solidarity with the solidarity with the people in the Latin American countries that migrants are being pushed out of? Well, I think that what is so important is for us to really lift up the hood on the root causes of migration. The climate crisis is absolutely one of them. However, you know, when we see these images on television, there really is so much kind of, I think, implicit racism and also just, I don't know, geocentrism uh, when we look at this, because we just see these video shots to make it look as though there's hordes of people coming up on our border. 
there's never any, any exploration as to even where they're coming from. You just hear the word migrants, right? And there's this implicit suggestion that these migrants are from all across South America and Latin America, and all of these countries are poor, and all of these countries are destitute, and they're all just knocking on the U.S.'s door. And that depiction and those the, the lack of specificity, the lack of exploration and detail in our media is such a disservice uh, to all Americans in figuring out how we contend with this. And when we talk about how to actually resolve this, the first thing that's important to name is that most of these people are coming from largely one country, and that is Venezuela. And we must name that so that we can explore why. Of course, there's a broad amount of diversity. There are Haitians, there are Nicaraguans, Guatemalans, but the, the bulk of migrants that have been coming to the United States have been, from, have been coming from Venezuela. And when we do not engage in that truth, we create a vacuum through which the right wing does its thing. And the right wing doing its thing is saying, oh, this country is socialist, this country is authoritarian, this country is autocratic, and all of these people are fleeing this regime, and is and virtually everyone here is, is a, a refugee, a political refugee. And it's very important for us to understand two very important things, first of all. One, I think a lot of leftists, I think, fail to examine the situation with nuance. And they either don't know what's going on, and it's kind of like this Achilles heel, or you, there's also kind of a cohort that wants to defend what is happening there at all costs. And I think that is problematic as well. When you look at what's happened in Venezuela with Maduro, it's also, it, what does, I mean, not to get too in the weeds, but when you look at what socialism even means, like it's, this is not a clear cut situation. How about we start there? <laughs> and right. there's two main factors that if I, I would argue that is driving migration out of Venezuela. The first is economic, in which we can examine the roots of, of the economic situation of Venezuela. But then the second also has to do with U.S. intervention, which is sanctions and the extent of our sanctions on Venezuela and how it has contributed to destabilizing the situation there, which has driven many migrants out. So I'll start with the sanctions piece first. In 2017, Marco Rubio, a senator from state of Florida, who is extremely politically motivated when it comes to U.S. policy in Latin America, you have Senator Marco Rubio and you have Donald Trump. And Marco Rubio and both of these folks are highly politically motivated around the state of Florida, but also Marco Rubio is highly politically motivated around supporting right-wing movements when it comes to either Colombia and supporting either Plan Colombia or its kind of descendant <laughs> policies as well, or just taking very hard right, strict foreign policy, advocating for this. And so in 2017, Marco Rubio advocates for dramatically expanded sanctions in Venezuela, towards Venezuela. And prior to that, we had much more narrow sanctions, uh, probably comparable to the Magnitsky Act, where they were sanctions, yes, 
but they were very targeted, very targeted towards the Venice to certain Venezuelan elite that were that were making unjust uh, uh, movements in the country. So they were quite narrow. In 2017, Marco Rubio proposes sanctions that dramatically expand the scale of sanctions in a way that destabilizes the Venezuelan economy and impact everyday poor, the working class, middle-class Venezuelans. And what we see is that those sanctions were proposed in 2017 and exactly in 2017 is when we start seeing why waves of migrants leave Venezuela and come to the U.S. southern border. So these sanctions that have existed for the past however many years, six years, have been one, one half, I would argue, of the primary driving forces of Venezolanos to the U.S. southern border. So I think it's very important that, to, that we should say, in order for us to stem this, we need to address our policy of sanctions in Latin America and towards Venezuela specifically. I also think it's important to acknowledge that we don't want huge, massive waves of people coming to the U.S. southern border for reasons of justice. These are families that do not want to leave their homes. They are forced to leave their homes. If we believe in the right to migrate, we also support people's right to stay put. Exactly. Exactly. And this idea that I, I think it's important to just acknowledge that fact. And we don't have to do it from a militaristic way, from a close our borders, build the wall kind of way. But it's to acknowledge that it is, in fact, a problem. And part of that problem is because of U.S. policy. And if we don't specifically name the sanctions as a reason why all of these folks are coming, then we're kind of we don't really have a lot of ground to stand on when it comes to advocating for policies that can help provide relief to the situation. So secondly, in addition to the sanctions, we also have to contend with the fact that Venezuela is a petro state. And I think that a lot of times when it comes to foreign policy, people get caught up in left and right. And I think that we need to acknowledge the environmental dimension uh, because there, because petro states have a tendency to breed authoritarianism, and there creates this 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 web of complication that we see. I mean, and I'm and even when it comes to the history of of Maduro, you have U.S. interventionism. As with all of Latin America, I think there's a theme where you have an ascendant left movement. Then you have U.S. interventionism, which then radicalizes the continent. You know, when you see what happened in the history of Colombia, you have Gaitan, who was, many might say, a liberal populist. And Fidel Castro was actually quite close to Gaitan. And it was when Gaitan was assassinated that Fidel Castro came to the conclusion that an electoral path for a left was dead on arrival that it was impossible. And he also looked to Guatemala and the CIA-backed coup there. Exactly. And so it is U.S. interventionism, in, and whether it's Salvador Allende, Gaitan, etc., which many of these things were starting to happen either concurrently or, or, or chronologically to, towards one another, all of this U.S. interventionism further radicalized an ascendant left. And so you have this example with the elections in Venezuela, where the Maduro regime felt that there was enormous amount of interventionism, whether it's through sanctions or other means, that they then also did engage in uh, shutting down 
certain candidates were not allowed to run. There were accusations of extraordinary um, movements towards voter suppression. And this was seen and justified as a response to interventionism. But these actions, nevertheless, did occur and did happen. And it's important for a North American left to acknowledge that and to, to just engage with the nuances and specificity specificities of what is going on there. And right. in addition to that, you have the fact that Venezuela is a petrostate. So what happens is that there are booms and busts, as with any industry or cycle. And when the price of oil goes down, then this is a state 94 to 96% of, whose, of whom's economy is dependent on oil uh, begins to suffer dramatically. Now, what we see, if you fast forward to the present day, when it comes to the economic situation, things have stabilized in Venezuela somewhat because of the war in Ukraine and the driving up of the cost of fossil fuels has actually somewhat stabilized part of that economic situation. In addition to remittances that are being sent by Venezuelan immigrants from the United States to Venezuela. So you're starting to see one half of that equation start to kind of stabilize somewhat, but the sanctions regime is still put. Next year, there will be elections in Venezuela. And, you know, it's important to also state that not all three of these other left leaders, Lula, Boric, or Petro, have the same line towards Venezuela either. Um, Boric is, is very critical what he sees as human rights violations in Venezuela. And you have just three leaders that are all part of a left, but they have different stances and different um, dispositions towards the country. And so in that, I think when you look at it from a historical perspective, uh, it's important to just, you know, acknowledge the nuance and the complexity of this issue. And if we don't do that, then we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, it is important to acknowledge the com the complications here so that we can advocate for better policy. Yeah, I think that's so important. And you have Castro, as you said, coming to believe that you can't do a democratic road to socialism because of what he sees in Guatemala and Colombia. And then when Allende is coming under so much pressure in the lead up to the coup, you have Castro with good reason warning Allende about what's coming. The U.S. has kind of fundamentally structured that whole dynamic. Right. Um, Right. It's this militancy that so many, I think, in the U.S. on the right point to as these boogeymen or just the everyday average person, moderate American, who are moderate Americans are incredibly important for a left coalition. I think that's something that must be said, must be acknowledged. It was even reinforced when we were in Chile uh, that how much and same thing with Lula. Lula has built an incredibly complex political coalition in order to govern. All three of these leaders have won presidencies, have won their presidencies, but are also contending with highly conservative Congresses. And I think that's an additional dimension sometimes that those of the North American left have to contend with, that these are, this is not some pie in the sky kind of two-dimensional picture, but that they are dealing with extraordinarily complex political dynamics when we see and when the average moderate American sees a, a depiction of Latin America with, quote unquote, extreme left movements or 
whatever it may be, it's important to acknowledge that U.S. interventionism generated a lot of that militancy. That's not where they often started. It's where they concluded because of our history of interventionism. You mentioned earlier the debates in Latin America over how to position itself vis-a-vis this increasingly multipolar geopolitical order. And we're living in this moment, of course, of renewed great power rivalry. First, what is the impact on Latin America and on the global South more generally of everything from the war in Ukraine to what many are calling a new Cold War with China? Do, Do these conflicts and competitions put progressive governments in a difficult bind? And if so, how can we on the U.S. left push for de-escalation of these conflicts with Russia and China rather than intensifying them? How do we work to create a world order that is more peaceful and just for for residents of the great powers, including us, as well as for the people of the global south? Well, I think this is one of the great questions of our time geopolitically. In some of my engagement, both domestically, but also globally, uh, myself and I know many progressives, including Senator Bernie Sanders, have been warning about this framing of a Cold War. This is something Republicans very, very much want ever since the ever since Republicans took over the majority in the House. Uh, they there have been basically nonstop votes uh, around escalation and China condemnations, resolutions, funding changes. They're being very, very aggressive about this. And one of my big concerns is that we just spent decades in a Cold War that just ended in the late 80s, early 90s, um, but also whose ghosts kind of have perpetuated much longer than that. And so we have a lot of institutional and political grooves that can that we can snap right back into when it comes to a cold war frame. And if we continue to do pursue that kind of escalation with China, we're really not going to end up in a good place at all. Now, as this pertains to Latin America, Latin America I think is very much uh, under the squeeze of this because they want neither party in this to have undue influence over their lives and their destiny. They just dealt with decades and decades of U.S. interventionism, which has created an enormous amount of skepticism whenever the U.S. is involved, but also they do not seek dependency on China or any other global power. What they want and what they, what much of Latin America, I think, has wanted since colonization is sovereignty and independence. And so there is, I think, a desire to somehow balance relations between these two. And when it comes to the real politic of the United States, uh, let's say you're coming in just wanting to advocate for U.S. interests in the region, I think arguably U.S. interests in the region would also be to rebuild those relationships and cease an interventionist stance. That interventionist stance, I do not think, serves our country. It perpetuates instability, and it also perpetuates a greater skepticism that would drive people 
uh, and drive any of these countries away from alignment with the United States, which is, I think, that alignment is still important to advocate for on human rights grounds, on ecological grounds, in building global consensus. We are on a race against the clock when it comes to the climate crisis. And the more that we can build that global consensus, the more we can achieve our goals. And that includes with China, by the way. Um, I think it's very important for us to counter this idea. And when it comes to competing interests, I think it's okay to acknowledge just that, that it is one thing to speak about a global frame of competition, but it is another frame entirely to speak about a frame that indicates more of an aggressive kind of almost combatant stance. Uh, once, once you label another country, let alone a superpower, as an adversary, uh, that with it brings a lot of different implications. In this multipolar world, I think it's really important to understand everyone's different incentives. I, I mean, there may be many who disagree, surely. <laughs> there are a lot. But I just think that this is a, a situation that should not be escalated. Uh, and frankly, it's, I'm sure, uncomfortable to acknowledge uh, the desire for a whole continent to be sovereign. But I think we should learn from the ravages of Kissinger and Nixon, as well as Plan Colombia and many others, that, that engaging in that manner is not going to do us any favors. We have narco-trafficking, we have extraordinary amounts of violence. Where do we think these guns came from? Where do we think these paramilitaries came from? It's We need to understand that this retreat and that this over-militarized approach is actually a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, when it comes to violence. Well, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you very, very much. Of course. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez represents New York's 14th District. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after exhorting workers of the world, unite, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Fiorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what does that above all else is you telling people to check out this pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>